Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 334. Well, first of all, Happy New Year! This is the first episode of 2012, and in fact, in what has become Current jazz session style. It was recorded January first, and you're hearing it on January second. I used to have these done weeks in advance, and I was very professional, and I had a just a big, you know, can full of interviews, and never had to worry. And now it seems that I am often reaching out on like Saturday night for a Sunday morning interview, so that I can have a Monday show. I don't know what has become of me, but anyway. As far as you're concerned, everything is flowing along smoothly, and that's perfect.、Uh, thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They are online at respectsextet.com. They book all their shows well in advance, so if you're going to go see them, they'll be there, and you'll know a long time before. Respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com/slash/davevrabel. V-R-A-B-E-L. This show is member supported. It's free for you to listen to anytime you want it, all 334 episodes. But if you would like to keep the show coming to you, I ask that you become a member, which you can do very cheaply for as little as ten bucks a month. Or if you want to pay in a yearly sum, you can do it for as little as a hundred and ten dollars a year. But if you choose to do it at a level higher than that, at the middle or upper level, the next two people who do that will get a copy of Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set Seasons. Which I can say, not only do I like, but my roommate is a big fan of too. So、uh, it's roommate approved. It's fantastic. It's a guitar quartet written for these four guitars that were built to be played together. It's amazing. You should have it, and you can have it if you become a member at the middle or upper level, either monthly or yearly. You can choose to pay monthly, or you can choose to pay in one lump sum. But please do become a member, whatever you can afford, because that's what keeps the show on the air. I also need to say a, a thank you. I usually don't give you the the behind the scenes here, but to、uh, Terry Hinty, who is a, a music promoter par excellence, and who has helped me out of several recent、uh, scheduling jams, and has just come to my aid time and again. She's a, a beautiful human being, and、uh, I really thank her for allowing there to be the last several episodes of the jazz session. It's it's great. Thank you, Terry, and happy New Year. So let's start 2012 off on a great note. This is a fantastic interview,、uh, having very little to do with me and everything to do with the guest, who is Michael Pettison. He's got a new album that's gorgeous called Ballads: Searching for Peace.、Uh, I think you're going to like it, and he's just got a fascinating life story, which I'm really happy to bring to you. So let's hear the very first track off Ballads, which is "You Don't Know What Love Is," and then we'll hear from Michael Pettison himself. <laughs> Thank、mm-hmm. you. 
My guest is the saxophonist Michael Pettison. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Hi, Jason. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Happy New Year, by the way. Thank you. You're, yes. my, you're my first interview of 2012. So no, you're a... my first person to speak to other than my <laughs> wife in 2012, Very actually. Nice. <laughs> well, hopefully it's an auspicious beginning for both of us. So uh, the new album is called Ballads, and I, I, you've said some things about this, but it, it strikes me that you have to work your way up to a ballads album if you're going to do it right, maybe. Is that I felt your experience? That, I felt that I did. Um, obviously, all of those ballad uh, albums that we all know and love, uh, that's our favorites or our, our idols, my idols did, especially John Coltrane's. Um, you know, it sticks with you or stuff stuck with me for years and years and years. And I think I had to, had to get to the point where I felt kind of qualified and able to do that. Although, I will say to you that I always probably felt the most comfortable playing ballads in my life. I mean, obviously, we all like to play various tempos, but I love playing ballads. So, why do you think that is? What is it? I about? think it just really kind of makes me dig deep, and it makes me feel very comfortable, and that I have time to express myself. Um, the emotional piece of that, or the spiritual piece of all that, in addition to um, loving to produce the sound that I do on the saxophone. I think I kind of identify with it when it's slow and easy more, more than when it's just rapid and a bunch of notes. Sure. You know, so. yeah, it, it, in my own experience of it, although it seems somewhat counterintuitive, I always found it was more difficult to play slowly, particularly as an ensemble where it really required very intense listening from the band when the tempos are very slow yes. and there's a lot of space between the notes. I don't know. If and it's know. important the players with you are really important. I mean, in, in a supportive sense, the rhythm section, obviously, as a soloist, um, that, that kind of has to be really in tune to that and allowing, I think, all of that space to take place. I mean, if we go back in jazz history and listen to people like Miles and Train and whomever, Thelonious Monk or whatever, I mean, space, even Count Basie, I mean, you know, not even Count Basie, but I mean, space and silence is really important. So those spaces between notes, I think, are important. And I grew up, um, prior to listening to people like Train and Cannonball, um, there was a guy that inspired me a lot, and uh, his name was Willis Jackson. And, and I think that stuff that playing one note uh and maybe articulating it differently or and miles does that too of course you know where pitch variation and all of that stuff is so much more important important i think from an emotional standpoint than a lot of notes everybody almost everybody can learn to play a lot of notes through chord changes, although nobody does it as well as John Coltrane. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I listen to him and I say, why bother? <laughs> but, you know, that's, I mean, that's, so I think that's what ballads kind of uh, enable me to do and feel that space, so to speak, you know. Do you find in the midst of a ballad that you, uh, you still, you have time to go places you didn't expect, that surprise can happen? Absolutely. Yeah. In that situation. Of course, that hap I mean, hopefully that happens in a lot of tunes, but sure. ballads especially. I mean, up-tempo things, you probably don't have a chance to do that other than, I mean, uh, harmonically so somewhat, but I mean, emotionally or sound texture variation, you don't have a lot of time to do that. But in a ballad, you can do a lot of things. I mean, you, you can use vibrato, use no vibrato, use slow vibrato. I don't use fast vibrato, of course, like they did in the old days, but you can even alter that. You can get, get that... Spitty sound, you know, mm. not get it, but I mean, that kind of comes out, you know, sometimes the low notes and the pads on your saxophone that you can almost hear the pads closing. I mean, that all to me, like, just feeds back and means a lot. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, at the, the cadenza, I think at the end of 
maybe it's at the end of you don't know what love is you can hear the, the sounds of the yeah. pads on the saxophone yeah. it just feels very immediate very in the room and that's a that's a, not an easy thing to get from a recording studio a lot of times too and the right engineer and producer has to be in tune to that and i th i think that's another thing about this um cd that the uh the guy that engineered it for me and and mixed it really understood that he should just capture my sound and not adulterate my sound mm -hmm. or and that that was one of my problems i think for a lot of years in my past life of recording that i was directed in different ways by producers and also i don't think a lot of the engineers that i had the opportunity to record uh with understood the music that i was playing mm. or, or my sound and they change your sound you know in the studio i mean i would hear a playback and i said but it doesn't sound like me i mean why are you taking it and altering it and processing it that's not what i want i mean why do why do why do we work on the sound that we want to be able to play for our whole lives and then you alter it because of eq or right reverb i mean it's unnecessary you know and you worked with i want to get to this a little bit later but you certainly in your professional career have worked with people with very specific ideas about what their music was going to Absol sound like absolutely <laughs> yeah. very concrete ideas <laughs> very specific yeah <laughs> With the exception of You Don't Know What Love Is, which is the first track on here, the, the repertoire is, I think, really fascinating, too. Uh, there's obviously a bunch of original compositions. But even the things you chose that are by other people, Hank Mobley, uh, Wayne Charters Virgo, I mean, those are things that aren't played a ton, which I really like also. It, it, interesting that you're saying that, and they aren't played a ton. Um, the Home at Last tune of Hank Mobley's, I was only introduced to that maybe a year or a year and a half mm. before the I did the CD. I didn't even, I didn't know the tune. Of course, I know Hank Mobley. Sure. But I never knew that tune. So I was really happy to find it. And once I started to play it, uh, it wasn't intended for a CD. I'll tell you about the way the CD came about, actually. It's kind of interesting. But um, once I heard the tune, I enjoyed playing it so much. And although it's not a ballad per se, I wanted, I wanted to use it anyway. And Wayne Shorter, I've always been a big fan of Wayne's writing, um, not that I'm not a fan of his playing, but I think his writing has always really appealed to me. Yeah. Changes it, in the progressions of, in that tune are beautiful. And absolutely. Brilliant. How yeah. did you get introduced to that Hank tune that you were talking about? Um, a young friend of mine who lived not far from here, actually, in Brooklyn, uh, named Joe Bridenstine, 
uh, trumpet player, is one of those guys that every time I do a gig with him or he does one with me, he's always bringing a new tune or two to play. Always. And he's very organized about it. And he brought that tune to a little gig that we did in Greenwich Village one night, um, I guess maybe two years ago. And That's right. we played it there, and I loved it, and I've been playing it ever since. And so now tell me the story of how you came this, to record the, the album. album in the first place. <laughs> this, the tune? Yeah, the, yeah. The album, no, the album, yeah. Well, um, like I said, I, I've somewhat, I think, been misdirected at, at times in my life for a myriad of reasons, of course, that we could talk about forever. But um, the album I did prior to this was in 2007, and the same uh, writer that wrote a few of these tunes, John Valentino and I, talked about the next album, and I, I wrote actually most of the tunes for the next album, uh, which never came out, is my point. So we went into the studio and did eight tunes, um, all originals, uh, I think five of mine and three of his, and when I left the studio, I always try to get away for a day before I even listen to it about mixing or anything like sure. that. Um, and I said, I don't like it, mixed or not. I don't like the music, and I wrote most of it. I, I just that doesn't appeal to me. So we went through some uh, ups and downs with each other, and the studio, and the engineer, and everybody said I was crazy. You know, how did you not like it? You wrote it, and everybody's playing is wonderful. And I said the I, the music just doesn't speak to me. I don't, I'm not happy. I don't like the way I sound on it. Um, so months went by. And was this an uncommon reaction for you in listening to your own albums? Or I never liked, I, I'm never really satisfied with the way I play. Sure. But this was more uncommon than most in that I didn't like them, even the material. And I, I had written the material, most of it. Um, so a few months went by. We t I talked about it, thought about it. And it was really my decision. Actually, I, I should, I guess, give my wife a little credit. Who uh, has, She's always wanted me to do a ballad CD for a lot of years. So I said to John Valentino, the uh, co-producer and, and the uh, composer, I said, I love the three ballads that are on it. Um, so I'm going to just use those three ballads and do four more four other ballads that are not ours, but of other people that I love to play. And that's how it came about. Everybody thought it was crazy, obviously. <laughs> you know, the studio guys, the engineers, everybody thought it was nuts, but that's how it came about. And then I was happy. I think for the first time, actually, I, I am one of those guys that is never really satisfied with my playing. Sure. Um, but I think for the first time ever... Uh, I can listen to this if I walk into my house and my wife has it on, or if I, if somebody says, "Do you mind if I put your CD on?" Because they know me while you're here having a glass of wine or something, and I can say okay to this one. I've never been able to do that before. I've always said I I can't sit here if you're going to play my music, you know. And do you have any idea what it is about the nature of this album that makes it? I think it's more me, and I think mm. I'm satisfied with me, and I think I've gotten to a place probably in my life. Uh, that I'm satisfied with me. Sure. <laughs> and my playing, although, you know, the, the, the wonderful aspect of us in playing jazz is that age is not a big factor. Um, I still practice every day, and I'm still learning and developing. In fact, somebody on Facebook the other day said, th what three words are really important um, to you for the new year? And I said, I, I'm still learning. So that's kind of my MO, I guess.
how do you put yourself in environments where you are still challenged and still grow? Um, with some younger musicians, uh, often, you know, with uh, new music of theirs, and also just kind of revisiting some of the things that I feel that I overlooked over the years. Um, you know, there's a, there's a uh, John Coltrane interview that always stands out. I teach a course in jazz history uh, at a college, and I, I play the, this interview for the kids. He was in Sweden, and... Mm -hmm. I know, just the one you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it was right when he was ready to leave Miles. Yeah. And they're trying to really pigeonhole him into an aggressive stance, which Coltrane won't go there because he was a beautiful angel, as Elvin says. Um, I was fortunate enough to shake his hand once, by the way. I'll tell you about that. But anyway, um, he says he's questioned about who his idol, who does he listen to? And he kind of hems and haws a little bit. He says, I know I have to go back and listen to some of the guys, you know, that I just, ha just haven't had the chance yet. And, and, and I laugh at that to myself and to the students because I'm sure he meant it sincerely, but whatever he had already listened to was certainly sufficient enough <laughs> to <laughs> get him where he was and he was who he was, which is what took him to where he was able to go. And sure. Who knows where he would have ended up if he were s still with us, you know? Yeah. But that, that statement has always stuck, uh, to me, into my, uh, in my head, uh, because I think there were some things in my younger years that I didn't pay enough of attention to. Not that I should have learned their music necessarily, but just should have absorbed or embraced some of the music. When I played with Dave Brubeck, I, I tell this story. Um, I didn't know Dave's music. I mean, I just didn't listen to Dave Brubeck as, as a young guy. You know, I listened to Train and Miles and Cannonball and th those kind of people. And um, when Dave called, uh, interesting story, he said he called me on New Year's Day this year. And he said, would you like to play with a band? And, of course, I didn't think much about it. I said, absolutely. First rehearsal is, and he gave me a date. And I said, will you send me some music? And he said, no, nah, he said, I really don't have charts for the quartet. He said, but you know most of the tunes, right? I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was on January 1st. On January 2nd, like, would be tomorrow. I ran out and bought every debut album that I could find. And I knew about him. I actually, that, that I could find. And I knew about him. And I did have, I think, an album or two or three of his back in the day. But it was just not the music that I was listening to at, sure. at, at the time, you know. But I bought it because Dave Brubeck is an icon. And, right. And over the years, my point to you is a year ago, a little less than a year ago, um, he called, interestingly enough, after all these years, I've been 28 years, 27 years since I was with him, and asked me to do a quartet day with him in Germany uh, with a symphony, in front of a symphony. And his saxophone player, who's the same guy that's been with him since I left, uh, Bobby Militello, for yeah. some reason couldn't or didn't want to do it. And Dave ended up not being able to do it because of his health, his health, his ill health, and his son Darius played. Um, but when I went to his house for that rehearsal, um, I was so taken by who he is. And I, and I had been at that house 25 years before and went and did the rehearsal and got my car and left. Mm. But I snooped around the studio. I mean, I wanted to see and feel who Dave Brubeck is, you know, and who he's been all these years. I mean, I saw all those little yellow sticky pads with, with dates that he had just written. He's 90 years old. I mean, he had just finished a score for this or just ended this uh, cello part here and wanted to finish it in a day or so. So 
I, I've matured, I guess is what I'm saying. Sure. <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, and taken stock of a, a lot of those people that have led us to where we are. And, and I teach the history course. I've done that for many years in, in colleges, but I think the older I've gotten, the more in tune to what those guys did and went through and how they got to where they were is more important to me than it ever was before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's a journey, I mean, for all of us. You know, I feel like, and that's what keeps, I guess, uh, us or jazz musicians feeling so youthful in that sense that it's it's really a journey and you're never really finished. I mean, I'm always aspiring to do more, play more, say more, be able to make more people smile and feel good. Will you tell me about the musicians who are on this record with you? Yeah. Um, the I'll start with the piano players. Um, interesting. Barry Miles uh, is a guy that was a kind of important fusion guy in the 70s who I did not know um, and moved uh, to an area close to where I live uh, in New Jersey. Uh, and people told me that he had come into that part of town, and I was amazed and surprised that he had ended up there. Um, so he and I started to play together a little bit. I loved his playing, so I asked him to do um, the album in the beginning, the one I told you about when it was all the other music with it. Right. So Barry was the piano player on that. Um, then I started to work with this other piano player a lot, Dean Schneider, um, along the way during that transition time for the CD, I should say. And I liked the way Dean played, and I liked the way we related uh, to each other, and so I asked him to do the next four tunes. And he and I were doing a little gig that was uh, pretty constant at the time, too, so we were able to play a lot of those tunes on a regular basis so that we could kind of feel each other. Um, the, the guitarist, Johnny Valentino, is uh, a guy probably about 10 or 15 years younger than I am, lives in Los Angeles, um, I didn't know him when he knew me when I grew up in Philadelphia and was playing a lot around the city. Uh, he used to come and hear me when he was a young guy. So when I moved to L.A. for a while, and when I moved to Los Angeles, he contacted me and said, I would love to do a project with you. And that was the 2007 uh, CD, so that's how that came about. But he's a wonderful player, a Matheny-ish kind of player, great writer, prolific. I mean, he writes music all the time, every day. That's what he does, you know. He actually has a an interesting corporate gig too. He he is the music person, writer, producer for the Mattel Corporation. Oh wow! So any Mattel product that come comes out, toy, computer, any anything electronic, John has done the music for that, and that's come through his studio wow. at Mattel in Los in uh, Los Angeles. Given all of the gifts that my parents have given my kids that play loud music, I think I probably need to have a few words <laughs> with, John, with John at some point. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the other guys are um, guys that I started to play with um, because of the area in New Jersey that I uh, we moved five years ago when we came back from California. Um, drummer Bob Shomo, who uh, I love and is a very, I think, thoughtful and uh, musical, tasty drummer. Um, and the bassist, uh, Andy Lalasis, is a bass player who I actually worked with last night as well, um, who I like to play with a lot. And I think the reason that... Um, I selected them for this CD as a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, I like their musicality and their musicianship. Um, they're all good friends of mine. And the third reason would be for ease of they were 
close by and in the neighborhood when I decided to record. And right. we, we had played together frequently on a, a whole bunch of gigs, probably within the six months or eight months prior to going back to finishing the album. Sure. Yeah. It's really clear, uh, we, and you touched on this earlier, but it's, it's so clear how important it is to have a sensitive rhythm section with a really strong feel for the time yeah. when things are this slow, particularly yeah. in the drums, I think. And it, I think he really shines on this. Yeah, on I think they did a really wonderful job in, in being there for me, so so to speak. Yeah. You know, I, I really do. And I talk about that with kids in, in classes, too, that, I mean, as a soloist, when you are the soloist for that period of time, you need the support of the rhythm section, you know, and they need to realize where you would like to go and... If need be, and you get a little loggy and not so interesting, I hope the hope is that they're sensitive enough to kind of maybe push you or pull you maybe in another direction if they know you well enough to be able to do that without it infringing upon where you want it to go anyway. I mean, that happens to all of us, too. Sometimes a drummer will start to kick me before I'm ready to be kicked. And I'll turn around and kind of look at him, and then he'll know that's not where I want it to go yet, maybe, you know. Yeah. So, But that, that whole... Um, symbiotic relationship uh in a in a quartet or quintet is is really critical yeah. and the other piece of that is the person doing sound for you and i often tell sound guys you know at the end of the night i thank them so much you know and sometimes i probably go over the top with doing that but if they've done a good job and they're supportive and they really hear where you are and what you're trying to do they're almost i mean almost as important as anyone in the band you know, and allowing you to hear yourself the proper way and to get it out to the audience the proper way, rather than some sound guys who there's a little bit of a... Yeah. As a person who constantly goes to see shows, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know if, the, if the sound guys aren't good, yeah. it doesn't matter how good the band is if you can't hear them properly. Yeah. And if you're not getting that on stage, especially at a bigger concert or, a, you know, sure. a big, a large venue, if you're not being able to hear yourself and they relate to the guys that are right by you, then you're not going to put out the music that you would hope to put out. I feel like uh, we need to to fill in some history here for people because there's there's so much. You have such a fascinating life leading up to this album, your tenth. <laughs> I have, and I think that people 
you know, we can just talk about this record, but if people don't know what came before it, I think they're missing what would be on the DVD extras of the Michael Pettison story here. <laughs> okay. So, and I think to do that, we really need to start with your dad uh, to give people an yeah, idea of, of where you come from. My dad um, is and was a great dad, a saxophone player, totally unrelated musically to, to uh, me. Yeah, and was I he took, more in that like gator tail style that you were talking about before? Actually, or was he... I, my father was, um, I guess what they, they would categorize in the old days maybe as like a house rocking R and B ish sounding saxophone player, like walking on the bar, that's screaming how he, kind of thing. That's yeah. how he started, um, and then he kind of moved into that late fifties Bill Haley early rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard, hard to call it rock and roll now, but it was it was rock and roll. Kind of had a little, I don't know, like a touch of maybe country and R and B. Sure, all wrapped in, you know. Um, so when I, however, when I was a little little guy, um, I totally idolized what he did in his saxophone playing. Um, he happened to be an extremely talented, uh, innately talented guy, has perfect pitch and all of that stuff, but he was never motivated um, academically or or musically academically, I should say, to go beyond the point where he was satisfied enough to be able to entertain people. That's what made him happy. So if walking on the bar and playing flashy things on the saxophone worked and people smiled and danced, he was happy. Mm. I looked at that as being silly. You know, <laughs> I wanted to sound like, when I, even in my early days when I was playing alto, I wanted to sound like Cattle Bladderly, you know. Um, but I, I remember people used to compare my father to like people like Earl Bostick and some of those sure. early guys. But he became an entertainer, you know. But the the wonderful thing for me was he was totally supportive of me and what I liked to listen to and try to play. Never gave me a saxophone lesson. Uh, did his best when I was a, a little boy to take me to the worst teachers he could find so that I wouldn't follow the path that he followed <laughs> as a musician. And I'm not kidding about that. And when so I there was, was more than one psychologist in the right. family, it sounds like. <laughs> when I was 13 years old, I just said that. I mean, this is silly. You know, I, I knew I wasn't born a prodigy. I'm not a genius, but I play better than my teacher. And that's just some, something wrong with this picture, you know. Right. And then he finally took me to one guy, and I kind of six months later grew out of him, too. And the band that he took me to that was most important in my musical life as a kid growing uh, was a guy named Buddy Savitt, uh, who was a really well-known Philly jazz guy that has unfortunately a lot of um, addiction problems so never went much beyond Philadelphia because it wasn't safe for him but he played his butt off you know and mm. everybody over those years just respected and knew him but the wonderful thing for me with my father was he allowed me and I don't know how he had the patience to do that to go to him because in those days he was he was a nightclub guy so he played in nightclubs five six seven nights a week matinees in the summer i remember saturdays and sunday matinees at clubs and he would take me as a little boy with my soprano saxophone and allow me to play on the stage even at eight years old and i couldn't really play at eight years old that way i could play something you know in front of somebody to play my lesson right and he allowed me to do that time and time and time again so he was really really tolerant um, used to take me to recording sessions of his in New York. He had one big hit record in the late 50s called Shake a Hand. And he used to take me to those recording sessions. And I was like a kid that thought I went to heaven. I mean, he would pick me up, take me out of school for the day to drive to New York with him to go to his next recording session. And I'd just be around the musicians. And he used to rehearse at home. So I would run from school after on the days when I was in 
third grade, run home. I was only a couple of blocks from the school, elementary school. Run home to just sit on the steps to the basement and and watch and listen to how they all rehearsed new music. So when he, he had that hit. He turned down a chance to to take the next step. Didn't yeah, he to stay he was, in Philly? He's he is uh, probably the most content human being that I've ever known in in, in my life ever, bar none. Um, and uh, as a young guy in 1958, I think when that record, some say 56, some say 58. I'm not really sure now, but whenever it was, I remember because I was so in tune to the business, hearing him on the phone with agents saying, "Oh, that's wonderful! The record became number one in Cleveland. Wow, Chicago too? No, I'm not going there. What do you mean you're not going there? They would be saying on the other end, and he'd say, 'I live here.'" And my family lives here. As we lived outside of Philadelphia, in a place called Ardmore, Pennsylvania. I live here. My wife is here. My children are here. I work here because he did work all the time, but never had that yearning for anything bigger or more important, whether it be financial or just for his ego, anything bigger than he had.、That's、in、great. every, but in every realm of his life, he doesn't want for anything except good health. And I, you also, there was a quote that I read from you、uh, that I'm going to poorly paraphrase, but something about he was less interested in being your musical mentor than in being a great father. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Sounds like a very. But he gave、movie. me the vehicle, you know, or allowed、yeah. me on on that vehicle to experience a lot of the music in those days. And we were, as I said, we were so different because I was always very academically challenged and very musically. Academically challenged. I mean, I always wanted to learn, and I always wanted to figure out why somebody was playing this and why I wasn't playing that. And、um, I mean, I, I, my undergraduate degree in music was as a composer because、uh, the school that I attended wouldn't allow saxophone at that time. <laughs> and then I applied to Juilliard for my master's degree, which I and I, I did get in,、um, but didn't attend.、Uh, and that was one kind of classical saxophone because、mm-hmm. they didn't have jazz saxophone either then. So. It's interesting that a guy who plays like you, and who's obviously so inspired by John Coltrane, comes out of a guy who played like Earl Bostic, because obviously there's a Bostic Coltrane connection too. I mean, yeah, sure. That kind of、yeah. you know soulful、uh, '40s and '50s saxophone sound really informed、right. a lot of what Coltrane did、yeah. too, and it, I think it's probably there in well, the guts of what you. It's funny though, my father's not a jazz guy. Yeah, it's really funny. But he said to me the other day, you know, Sonny Rollins just won that, you、mm-hmm. know, the Kennedy Center thing. And he said to me, and he's cognitively totally together at ninety four. He said, "Who is that white guy with all the, you know, the? I mean, that guy with all the white hair, that, that just got the saxophone award." I said, "Dad." He said, well, "I don't know who he is." Sonny <laughs> Rollins. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so he, I love your dad. He wasn't a jazz person. <laughs> well, you know、Fantastic. what, though, Jason? Maybe that's, and maybe that was a good thing. Yeah, for me, because there was no competition. Between us, he watched me and and liked what I did, and I watched him with respect and watched what he did. But there was no competition and no、us. predetermined path for you either.、Right. No, you know, here this is your cubby hole, and into it you go.、Right. It sounds like right.
Obviously, you said you went to undergrad, but can you talk about where in your life the decision to actually play jazz as more than something that was fun to do became real for you? Um, I think maybe about 10 years old. I was going to say, yeah, it sounds like maybe <laughs> no, in a I, crib. But yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think for real, probably, um, I maybe 15. I mean, 13, yeah, but I mean, when I was 15 and was lying on the floor next to the stereo... <laughs> listening to Cannonball and Train and those guys. And I mean, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I've taken, obviously, you know, you've done your homework too. I've taken some side paths sure. uh, along the way. But I think um, for whatever reason, uh, we can uh, analyze psychologically. <laughs> if you want to lay down for a few minutes. Those things happened and or took place. Um, I don't think there's anywhere else that I wanted to go or should have gone mm. uh, since probably since that age. And I would say probably from the age of 13, I knew it. But at 15, it was probably more uh, cemented sure. uh, in my psyche and my core. Yeah, I remember um, interviewing Adam Nywood on this show, whose dad was Jerry Nywood, and Adam is also a saxophonist, and obviously Jerry was. And uh, I, I think people like Adam and people like you have somewhat of an advantage in that you can't, you have a concrete example in front of you of the life of a life in music as an achievable life, and one that allows you to have a family True. and that kind of thing, rather than it seeming like, I have no idea how I could make music my actual profession. I mean, yeah. you had some example in front of yeah. you. Okay. Actually, it's interesting you're saying this. Someone last night, um, I worked last night, a, a younger guy than I, maybe 10 years younger, said that he had just got this great opportunity to play uh, a great gig in New York, but he realized that he doesn't live in New York, and it would take too much for him to get back and forth the one day a week, uh, and he wouldn't. it would cost him money rather than make money. <laughs> and I was just saying to myself, how could you not do that? I mean... <laughs> Just the opportunity to play with the people with whom you'll, you'll be playing, who you just told me weekly, go. Yeah. <laughs> but he already said no. So. But wow, that's I, yeah, really interesting. But, you know, yeah. we all have different paths. So will you talk about how your professional life began as a musician? Yeah. Um, I guess from the early teenage years, uh, I had a band. Um, and we played, of course, uh, commercial music at that time because it was weekend work and uh, we pick up a little nightclub gig somewhere or a college fraternity party somewhere. I hated them all, by the way, uh, <laughs> for the commercial aspect of them, but but did them because uh, it enabled me to buy a new saxophone when I needed one or yeah. a car to drive where I had to drive to to, to get to a gig. Um, and by the time I got to college. Um, I, that's when I really started to focus. Although, like I said, the college that I attended, now the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, uh, did not have a jazz program, but we started to play, uh, a lot of jazz in that program. I had a quintet. And when I was there in the, uh, mid to late sixties, uh, there were jazz festivals, uh, collegiate jazz festivals mm-hmm. all over the place. Uh, in fact, it's wonderful because I still get Facebook hits from guys that played those festivals now that will, you know, that will say hello. Um, and, and I will say, um, I guess kind of uh, proudly that uh, all of the festivals in the years that I did them, 67 and 68, um, were always 
uh, fun to play and they were competitive. Um, the competition part was always kind of a drag to me, but that's how they were set up. And, uh, in the later, latter part of the sixties is when Mike Brecker started to come up too. Uh, and he was on some of those festivals. Uh, and Lou, it was all, it, the three saxophone players that got the most attention, um, were Lou Marini from North Texas, myself. Mm-hmm. And of course, once Mike Brecker started, uh, he was younger than we were, but he started to get, uh, obviously a lot of attention, deservedly so. And that's always an interesting story too when I tell, I'll tell you about my playing years when I was in college in Philadelphia. So that's when I really started to do a lot. As a result of that, um, although the University of the Arts has never fully recognized it, good chance to say that. Um, <laughs> we started the jazz. I mean, I, I, a drummer by the name of Jim Paxson, um, Stanley Johnson, a pianist and a, and a trumpet player, uh, by the name of Steve Weiner, uh, really, it, we started to win all of these jazz festivals. And Phil Woods was an adjudicator. Stan Kenton was a, was an adjudicator. Wow. And who tried to drag me into his band when I was 20 years old and <laughs> I never did go. Um, Bob Thiel, Coltrane's producer, who we used to hear the best train stories from. He was a, a, a judge or adjudicator. So we started to do them as a result of winning all of those and bringing trophies home, like as if it were a, an athletic endeavor um the school recognized wow maybe we should start to sit up and pay attention to this and soon at the my senior during my senior year they started their first big band Hmm. the first year i had after i had graduated they started a jazz program and i started to teach there myself as an adjunct a couple of years after that but interestingly enough we used to play in philadelphia so from the ages of 17 till i was 20 i did a five-year program double degree but so 17 to 22 we played a lot all over the city and and actively as jazz musicians um and i traveled a little bit got offered a state department tour um still like i said stan kenton used to try to drag me to his band they were the days of Maynard and Buddy Rich and and I wasn't ready to go on the road then, but I had opportunities to go with each of them. I took Maynard's opportunity uh, later on in in the mid seventies, um, but I didn't do any of the others. And Mike Brecker was coming up in those days, and Mike Brecker and I uh, became uh, dear, dear, dear friends uh, all over these m- many years. Um, in fact, his fifth the fifth anniversary of his death is a couple of days away. Yeah, but. His dad used to bring Michael to hear me play, um, probably when Michael was 15 and I was 19. And four years after that, I was going to hear Michael play when <laughs> <laughs> Michael was 19. <laughs> uh, and that never stopped, you know. Yeah. Um, so we had a, a, I mean, a wonderful friendship. And obviously, you know, I, I don't have to say any, any more about Michael. I mean, you know, the amazing, beautiful, player that he mm. was you know for all of all of those years and it might you know talk about not being satisfied when i first got to know him when he was in his early 20s and i used to go to so many of his gigs to hear him and he used to come off the stage so unhappy and i would say how can you michael everybody in every musician every saxophone player yeah. at this bar has just quit yeah <laughs> really you know would do anything to have one chorus like you just played but right. he was you know he was he had so much i think in there everywhere yeah that he just couldn't get it all out either i did a, a, a hurry a master class in tokyo with him once and uh i just remember 
he the first thing he did was he started by showing us how he practices each day. Yeah. And I just remember that we were all of us in the room. It was I was the only American and uh one of the only I think people with a reasonable command of English. And as he was talking about, well, this is a part, but I do this for like two hours. And I, I just remember being like slack jawed in amazement. The things he was playing to practice were far beyond what anyone else in the room probably could play oh, yeah. at, on their best solo. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just what he was doing to warm up. Yeah. I just remember thinking, oh, well, that's why he's Michael Brecker. Yeah. Well, or if not. you ever, if you ever listen to any of those performances, and I'm happy to talk about him, by the way, during my interview, because he's, <laughs> he's such an important figure in person to me, you know, musically and as a, uh, just as a friend. But when you listen, to the couple of those things that he did just himself yeah michael brecker on stage and some of the things that he you know that like the naima version or mm -hmm. whatever but even beyond that at a couple performances that he's done i mean it's just incredible just to listen to all, yeah. all of that music you know so so, so where uh so we're uh, yeah so career collegiate time yeah and ha when does the kind of like gamble and huff years well that's, uh, is that, that's is that next we're about to get into right? so okay. during those years in philadelphia Gamble and Huff, uh, Philly International Records became, started to become very, very successful. And I was fortunate, uh, as a young guy to be asked to play on those sessions. So the decade of the seventies for me, other than playing jazz where I could, you know, in the evenings was rampant with recording sessions. I mean, I was in the studio probably four, five or six days a week from wow. 10 o'clock in the morning till six seven eight nine or ten o'clock in the evening doing gamble or huff gamble and huff sessions all of those acts so they had a big band they used to call the big band mfsb mother father sister brother and that horn section plus because they used a lot of strings too would record every day and the way they did it was rhythm section first of course uh strings i'm sorry horns next and strings next and sometimes they would double up in the day so you'd ask you'd finish a session and they would say well don't go home we want you to stay around and do another session in a couple of hours. And the beauty, and I will say, of Gamble and Huff, they paid you for that time when they kept you, which was not the way it was with every record company. Sure. So the decade of the 70s for me was great. In this, At the end of the 70s, they pretty much stopped. We, we should say, for people who may be listening to this on another planet, we should tell them who Gamble and Huff were, put uh, some context. Kenny it, Gamble yeah. and Leon Huff are two uh, producers and songwriters uh uh, that I guess kind of followed the Motown thing in a sense, although I don't think they copied that, but it was very similar. Uh, they recorded great R&B music, had a great ear for what would be appealing to the public, and they recorded people like the OJs and the Spinners and Lou Rawls and Teddy Prendergrass and uh, uh, who else? Who? Stylistics, yeah, a lot of those bands in those days. Even Stevie Wonder came in and did a record with them. Um, and are the, all of those names you just mentioned people whose sessions yep. you played on? Yeah. Plus the band itself, MFSB, which also had a lot of success, but they would never let that band out on the road for performances because they were so busy. Nobody would be able to be in, in the recording studio. Sure. I mean, they had two studios at the time. And back in the day, early, those studios were active almost 24 hours a day, both of them. Sigma Sound Studio was the name of the studio. They had one housed in their complex and then one that the owner of that studio joe tarzi had built on his own so in the middle of that though in 75 i did 
I guess Maynard just caught me on the right day um, when he called me and asked me to go with his band, which I think it was probably his third or fourth attempt. And Peter Erskine is the one who said, you got to somehow get him to come out with you. And I did. Uh, I don't know, for a year, year and a half, I guess, at the, at the very most. Um, and then I, you know, came back and I had given up my seat, so to speak, for a while in the Gamble and Huff organization, um, but then started to do that again. And then my first album, was offered to me by Gamble and Huff, which was uh, in 1980. I recorded it in 79. It came out in 80, uh, which was just called Michael Pettison Jr. And that was probably, you know, the beginning of my being directed improperly. Mm. Um, and I should have known better, I guess, but I didn't. So I was excited by the opportunity. I was a, a Philly guy. The, these were Philly guys. And they put me in the studio. However, I will say that I wrote, I think, the majority of that music as well. And it was kind of um, R&B-ish, touched with the jazz alto or tenor saxophonist. But we even had some girl vocals on it, background vocals. The Jones girls recorded on that. It was tasty and never did much until two or three years after that album was released. And for I should say, too, that also, um, honestly, that Gamble & Huff didn't, I wonder even why they did it because the the day it came out was the day it sat on their shelf. <laughs> I, I, to this day, I don't know why they. It was very nice of them to give me a record deal, my first one, and Columbia was their distributor at that time, mm. Columbia Records, which then became Sony, and it really sat. And I was frantic. It was my first opportunity, and I used to be in uh, the Columbia studio office in the city every day begging and saying why I mean, why and they say well you know our direction comes from gamble and huff we distribute but and it never happened but two years after that there was a station in new york called kiss wrks and a really good friend of mine bob malik who's a great tenor player i don't know if you know mm -hmm. bob malik and he called me and he said mike he said they're playing your record like 10 times a day i said no can't be <laughs> and it was an r&b station this one song called you anyway make a long story short I get a phone call probably three or four days after that phone call from Columbia Records because Kenny's deal was coming to an end with them, and now they had the rights to do it. And they said, would you come up and do you have any more singles? They, I said, wait a minute. You're asking me for singles? Like, where? In my garage? I mean, <laughs> shouldn't you guys have some singles? Because it was getting so much play in the city. And in, in 1982, people were still buying records. It was a single. Sure. Anyway, th that followed another phone call from them about a week later about a record deal. And I went up to the studio, and unfortunately, that didn't uh, do what I had hoped it would do. They they wanted to do one album. I wanted five to build a career. And then I said, how about three? And they said, no, one. And I said, no, thank you. Probably should have said thank you, and, and I've done one, but I didn't. Mm. Um, so that ended my ten my stay <laughs> at Columbia at the moment. <laughs> um, and I was... Not at odds, but really unhappy with Gamble and Huff because, I, I, again, I don't know why they recorded it. Years after that, by the way, the only record, the only place that record was actually a hit, if, if I may, was in the Philippines, which is bizarre. <laughs> but my biggest fan base <laughs> from those days to this day is probably in the Philippines or people that have come from the Philippines and <laughs> have lived in our country. It's one song that I didn't write, by the way. That's great. Yeah. So then following that, um, so Maynard, I had fun with Maynard. I enjoyed that uh, big band thing for a while. I'm not a really a big band guy that I don't enjoy standing up for 
16 bars and then sitting down again. But I, it was fun. Maynard was a wonderful guy, good leader. He was a terrific leader, I thought. And then I um, came home, continued to do recordings with Gamblin Huff. Um, then they kind of decided to stop, and I then became a player in the Atlantic City scene as a saxophonist because there was a lot of work there. Um, then I became a musical director there, and then I got called to go out with Dave Brubeck in 1981, I think, and did that and still dabbled in the Atlantic City. Well, more than dabbled. I mean, I played in Atlantic City, ended up being a musical director for a couple of their theaters there, uh, which was a lucrative living, but obviously after hearing me talk this long, you know, it didn't satisfy my soul sure. in any way. Um, and did that for a while and continued during that time to continue to record records but i think always the wrong producer i mean the people that i cared about in fact in those 80s is when bruce lundvall after gamble and huff had pursued me and i was so thrilled by that and even that fell apart for me so for some reason and i think it was kind of the way i had been directed because he i remember bruce had like the way I played, I sat in his offices two times, and then he said, well, record some stuff for me and bring it back. And again, producers that were doing things for me, I think, were the wrong thing, and he didn't certainly didn't have the time to babysit for me. Sure. But I think he was hoping that I would go in the right direction for myself. But it took me a lot of years yeah. to do that. And you did some touring with pop artists, too, during some of this time, right? Were yeah. you on the road with Bowie and Stevie Lou Rawls and, and Lou Rawls? Yeah. 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 And was that during the Gamble and Huff period that you would just go out with some of the artists who were working? During Gamble and Huff or? and even a little later than that. Okay. Yeah. Bowie was during the Gamble and Huff time. When Bowie decided to come into the studio, Sigma, which was one of the studios and make a, uh, a CD there. Mm. Or an album. Not a CD. Yeah. <laughs> an album there. Yeah. Most, and most of the, I think those acts came as a result of the Gamble Huff days and then Atlantic City too. When I was playing in those uh, or settings in the, in the theaters, I met a lot of the performers then and could do a little tour with them from time to time just to get away uh, from home for, sure. for a while. I don't mean from home but from Atlantic City for a while. Yeah. You know, yeah.
So once you realized that Atlantic City wasn't the thing that was going to fill you up inside, what came next? I gave that up and then just started really hard at working to pursue what I somehow missed, mm. you know, and didn't follow. Uh, like I should have, you know, the same guy I'm telling you about last night that said he didn't take that opportunity uh, with the right band in New York. He said, I re he he said to me that he's wrestling with having a family and or should he just allow himself to do you know gigs that don't pay any money and not be able to support a family and i think that was a big uh also a big piece for me in doing some of the things that i chose to do because i got married at a young age still am uh, to the same woman we had children at a very young age and i i wholly accepted that um responsibility and i don't even know if i would look at it as a responsibility it's what i chose to do and where i chose to be and knew that i had to make a living to provide them with a life mm. and food right <laughs> and clothes and sneakers sure you know so um i think that was probably a big piece of mine and the other piece that i think sidetracked me um unfortunately i guess in one sense a f more than a few times was the earlier academic piece that I mentioned to you. I mean, I had gone to medical school too when I was young, and the only other thing that ever appealed to me in life to do uh, was be a doctor. So, if music, if I music had not done it for me, and I didn't feel talented enough, I'm sure that's what I would have done. But it pulled at me for many, many, many years. Um, I went to medical school three times, in and out. In fact, actually, I said Maynard, the first time I left was the call from Maynard Ferguson. Um, I had only been in school five weeks, I think, at Maynard Call, and I said, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we should mention that your wife is actually in the room. Right? People have already heard her voice, and right now she's covering her face and sh shaking her head as she rehears this story. So. And So I wrestled with that for a long time, but I can honestly say now, and, and probably would have honestly said to you then, and if you read some of the poetry that I've written, that, that nobody actually has read. Uh, but my wife probably is in a drawer, uh, tell, kind of tells a story about the struggle uh, that I had going on inside me for 20 years about mm. that. You know, um, never when I was fully invested in music, feeling that I had deserted uh, a piece of myself that wanted to heal other people. Uh, when I went back to school to study to be the person that could heal other people, I felt like I had done myself such a disservice and taken away something to which I almost feel like I've been always addicted, and that's playing the saxophone. Mm. And did you not see playing music as a means of healing? You, you know what? I don't think I did then. I certainly do now, mm. uh, but I don't think I did then. And I think that's the reason you, you touched on the word psychology later, or psychologist, and that's why I think that part of me when I went back and got a PhD in psychology, I thought that it, I could I could do that and maybe somehow tie it into my life as a musician and make them work together and be satisfied both ways. And I think and that's what I did. Um, when I first started, my, my practice is really small. And the reason the reason I opened a practice was to be able to treat creative folks that were going through some of the same struggles uh, that I went through, and I, I, I'm fortunate that I didn't struggle with any of the bad stuff. Mm. Uh, I've never been addicted to any substance, uh, but I struggled with who I am and am I loved? <laughs> right. You know, musically speaking, you know. Um, well, I like the way you you phrased it. I think in your bio, you know, helping creative people deal with a non-artist friendly 
society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so all the things that we all, everybody in the world, or, or many of us deal with, just getting through the difficulties in life itself, here in America especially, and unfortunately, I think it's translating or moving itself. I don't think Europe's as friendly as it was uh, to artists, but I, I, I think that we struggle here, because, especially in the world of jazz. I mean, our, our jazz buying public still is like 2%. It was 3%, I remember, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So it's such a small group of people. I mean... Uh, I mean, I can. I mean, there's stories about people that don't even realize what we do. I had the experience, you know, a year ago of somebody introducing a young kid that had just started to play the saxophone, uh, and I being in, the, in, I was in that company, um, and they said, "Wow, he plays just like Michael," and the kid was just moving his fingers, and that's how little they even yeah. understood this music, you know. So getting through all of that but i don't i don't i don't think that's an excuse or should be ever because it's such a a passion with us and a need to do it you know i mean if you asked me or anyone asked me well you couldn't because you weren't alive but if anyone asked me when i was 22 years old or 21 in college do you expect to make a living doing this i would have said what does that have to do with it you know right and i find that young students now say the same thing luckily that they still have that passion. You know, yeah. they just need to play and want to play music. Was it a challenge for you after you'd done the Gamble and Huff thing and you'd done the Atlantic City thing? Was it a challenge for you to get back to the core of who you were as Absolutely. a musician? Yeah. How did you do that? I think some deep soul searching, you know, um, and hard, deep and hard soul searching. I don't think it was so easy. And I will, you know, there's another admission of mine, and that is I think many of us, and I'll speak for myself, um, study psychology uh, under the guise of needing or wanting to help others. And We're it's really, very self-reflective. Really yeah. trying to help ourselves <laughs> yeah. and figure ourselves out. And I, 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 maybe that was a, I think that had maybe a piece mm. uh, of helping me find myself. But I think it's just a lot of introspective, pensive moments. Uh, and this CD, I will say, at, at this time of my life because of uh some of the positive responses i've gotten has made me feel better about myself i think than i've ever felt before i guess we although i, I say i don't always need that public approval but i think it's the validation that we need and it's not necessarily the public i want them to like the music but i want people like you and other musicians, uh, my wife, uh, who knows, who know my music to say it sounds so good mm. to validate yeah. me, me. And that's, so, you know, it's still there. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still reaching. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was talking, uh, I'm getting very close to 40 now. And I was talking to a friend last night who was saying that, you know, she felt that the older we got, the more we kind of stripped away the things we don't need. Because yeah. I was saying how I felt like I'd changed a lot as a person since I was, you know, in my teens and my early 20s. And she said, I think it's less probably that you've changed than that you have removed the outer things that were never really a part of you and you're getting closer to the core. Yeah, and it, so. it sounds like to hear you talk about this ballads album and to hear you talk about your life that maybe that's the same journey that you've been on, that you've gotten closer to the core of who I you are. I think you're right. 
and I, and I I mean I my hope is and my the feeling is that I'm getting daily even closer to that course. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm already obviously thinking about uh, another record. Um, we still call them records. I heard you do that too. Which I still did. Happy yeah. to hear you're only yeah, yeah. not even forty. Yeah. Um, we so, had reel to reel when I started in radio, yeah. so I feel like I'm the last the last tinge of the old generation. So, so I still call them records. So that's that, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But it, I mean, it all feels good, and I you know I mean I've, I I have had younger musicians say to me when they're you know struggling to get there uh and uh, playing wise and also making a living saying well you chose other paths too uh, when you needed them and i and i it almost makes me cringe to hear that but i did Hmm. and i think that the other reason that i feel closer now and more able to play um and be who i am is because i guess i feel um that I've accomplished those other things and that my family is okay and my children are okay and they're stable enough and happy enough that their lives are okay. And now I don't have to worry so much about, or actually I don't have to worry at all about providing for them financially speaking or as a dad, as much they're grown and they have families of their own, you know, married and happy. And now I can kind of, we can travel a little bit and for gigs and be together and play a lot of good music without that other concern. I don't really have to make money to buy sneakers, right? You know, yeah. Anymore. I know that in addition to the band that's here on Ballads, that you have another project that you're involved in. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I would like to, uh, especially due to two of the guys that are in that uh, quartet. One of the guys, uh, outside of the two I was going to mention first, but I'll mention Dean Schneider is the piano player that's on, uh, this ballad CD as well. Uh, and when he, when I decided with Randy Jones and Michael Moore, uh, to put this together, um, the, the reason for doing it was because we were all, uh, alumni, uh, of Dave's and they're not really alum, neither is an alumnus anymore. Uh, they were still working with Dave a year ago when we decided to do this. He has now stopped a couple of, like, three or four months ago. But Randy had been with Dave for 33 years and Michael Moore, I think, for 11. Uh, and we, I talked to them first because they weren't working as much. And I said, maybe we could go out and have some fun playing this music in a totally different way. And Dean embraced it and really did well with the way he approached the music. And we talked to Dave Brubeck, of course, and got his blessing and approval first. Um, so that's been a fun thing, too. Uh, we not working a whole lot with that, but we have done some concerts. And we do have a, a, a really nice college date uh, performance coming up at the Richard Stockton College of New Jersey in February um, with the Dave Brubeck Project. So I'm excited about that. But it's another project that's fun to me. But, of course, the quintet uh, that I did, the or the quintet concept for the ballad CD will be my next CD. Um, sure. Hopefully within six or eight months I'll have something else out. And working some music now, actually. So that's great. I'm looking forward to that opportunity again, and I feel good. That's great. My guest is the saxophonist Michael Pettison. The new album is called Ballads: Searching for Peace, which I highly recommend. And it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. Wishing you the best in 2012. To you. Thank Thanks. you very much. Happy New Year.
That's music from Michael Pettison's album, Ballads, Searching for Peace. My thanks to Michael for starting the new year off on a great note. Please do become a member if you like what you heard. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year at thejazzsession.com slash join. There's also a mailing list, by the way, which I often forget to mention, and you can find that at thejazzsession.com. Right at the top is a link that says mailing list. If you sign up for that, you'll get an email every Thursday or Friday, uh, just one email, and it will tell you who's on the show that week and give you links to go right to the shows. And it will usually have some links to some new poetry of mine or some other interesting jazz stories. Stories, or, you know, who knows, maybe a recipe or two. Anyway, you can get that at thejazzsession.com and just click on mailing list. Also, I forgot at the beginning of the show to thank All About Jazz for carrying this program. Uh, you'll find it at allaboutjazz.com, and they have a widget. And if you install that widget on your website, it will show the latest episode of the Jazz Session. If you do that, let me know, because I will mention you in my newsletter, the one I just mentioned that goes out to the mailing list each week. To find that widget, the easiest thing to do is go to allaboutjazz.com and search for Jazz Session Widget in the search box, and it will just pop up and give you the code, and it's super easy to install on a WordPress website or almost any other kind of website if you have you know any of the, the coding minimal coding skill that I have uh, to make that happen. Also, if you don't have that skill, uh, if you want to write to me, I'm, I can probably help you install it on your website. So I think that's it. It's uh, it's exciting to be going. We're going to be celebrating next month the fifth anniversary of the jazz session. I think that comes in February. <laughs> you'd, you'd think I would know. I don't. But I'm pretty sure it's in February, and I know I have it in my calendar somewhere. Uh, lots of cool interviews coming up. Uh, tentatively, we'll be hearing from uh, Matt Wilson, Armand Danielian, uh, Bob Reynolds, Ed Reed, Bill McHenry, uh, hopefully Tom Wetmore. I expect Barry Altschul, many other cool people. Amy Servini will be back on talking about a great new record she has. So lots of cool stuff coming up in 2012, and I'm excited to have you along for the ride. Meanwhile, please, if you would, start the new year off right, won't you? And get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back here for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.